So we are beginning our monthly theme of invitation this morning. And you know, some time ago I've been doing these officiating duties for Wes for uh, a little while now, and I've noticed how many times I say the word invite in, in the officiating duties. I invite you to turn off your electronic devices. I invite you to turn, look through your programs. I invite you to turn to your neighbor and share Wes hello. And it always struck me as odd. I kind of felt like maybe I should find a different word. I seem to be using that word a lot, but I like that word. I think it's a good word. It's a warm and welcoming word. I think it welcomes people to come together just as they are. And we get to see what's possible, what can come out of it. Well, this morning, Marty and I have some stories to tell. Stories and readings and poems drawn from various traditions and cultures, all touching on this theme of invitation. Whether it is an invitation offered or denied, misunderstood or misdirected, sincerely felt or regretfully declined. There is in all of them the possibility to know each other and ourselves a little bit better. Also, in preparation for this morning's platform, Amanda Poppy, our senior leader, had put out a general call to West members to share their own experiences and their stories around invitation, good or bad. And we have some of those to share with you this morning as well. An invitation, if you will, to add their voices to our morning's program. And this is one of them. From a West member. About 27 years ago, I got a call from a woman at West who I didn't know asking if I wanted to go to a volleyball game. I was surprised by this, but having at the time recently had a relationship breakup, I was eager to make new friends. It turned out that the woman who invited me, totally platonically, had also invited another friend of hers, and this friend and I hit it off immediately. In fact, we got along so well that three years later we got married and have been married for over 24 years. (laughs) This first story we have to share is called A Calabash of Poi. It's a Hawaiian folktale. Who knows what a calabash of poi is? Does anyone? Any of the little ones? Kristen in the back there? That's right. A calabash is a gourd. It's actually a plant that has a hard shell. And if you cut it open and dry the shell, it can turn into a nice bowl. And in Hawaii, they use this bowl as a traditional way to serve food. And poi is kind of like porridge or mashed potatoes. It's actually made out of a plant as well. The the taro root that they pull out of the ground, they mash it up and they mix it with water and it makes this... uh, sort of porridge-like consistency that they eat with some of their meals, called poi. So this story is called A Calabash of Poi. Oh, and I need your help to tell this story. This is a little bit of audience participation. So you guys will actually be playing some of the characters in this story. So I need you to say some words for me, and we can practice a little bit here. So Marty, if you will bring up... So let's practice this. As the lines come up on the screen, you'll just say them. So let's practice this one. Ready? Very nice. Let's try the next one. 
Oh, excellent, excellent. Okay, well, let us begin the Kalabash of Poi. Pele, the goddess of fire, was walking down the mountainside. Today she had disguised herself as a feeble old woman with a hard face and bitterness in her eyes. She grasped her cane and hobbled down to a big house. It was a sizable house, as Hawaiian houses go, perhaps 50 feet long, its side thatched with tea leaves, a sign of rank. Its only window, about a foot square, looked out over a carefully planted taro patch, while rows of coconut palms and fruit-laden banana plants made a pretty background. Aloha, she said to a small group of people sitting in the doorway. Was the reply, but not a very friendly one. Pele waited. Apparently, there was to be no invitation to enter or to refresh herself. I have walked many miles, and I am very hungry. Perhaps you have a calabash of poi for me. Said the master of the house. Then perhaps a small piece of fish. Then at least some ripe berries. I am parched with thirst. Our berries are all green. See for yourself. Well, that's not very nice. <laughs> Pele's eyes were far from dim. At other times, they blazed with fire at the moment's provocation. But this time, bowing low, she made her way in silence to the gate and back onto the road. A few steps further down the hard road, she entered a smaller garden and paused at a small hut. The work of the day and the evening meal were over. The children played, and a fisherman and his wife sat watching the last golden rays of the sun sinking. I am sorry to trouble you, but... I'm very tired and hungry and had hoped for a little refreshment after a long day's walk down the mountain steep. Said the poor fisherman. And even as he spoke, his wife had risen, motioned Pele to to a place on the mat and sat before her a large calabash of poi. Pele ate happily, dipping her finger into the calabash. She raised it, dripping with poi to her mouth. She finished the entire contents in no time. Then rising to her feet, she uttered these words. When you plant taro at night, you may pull it in the morning. Your cane shall mature overnight, and your bananas ripen in one day's sunshine. You shall have as many crops as there are days in the year. Then Pele trudged out of the gate and was seen to disappear toward Hale Mau in a cloud of flame. When the astonished fisherman walked outside his hut the next morning, yellow bananas hung on new plants, the full-grown taro stood ready to be pulled, and the cane cuttings reached the eaves of his house. Thank you very much.
This is another memory from a West member. I was friendly with a custodian who worked in my building. He was Spanish-speaking. I'm English-speaking. We'd often stop and chat. I know it was just the typical polite exchanges of service staff and customers share, but for a while it seemed like we had a little budding friendship going. One weekend in November, a couple of years ago, we were chatting about family, and he asked what I was doing for Thanksgiving. I replied that we knew we weren't going out of town, but we hadn't made any of the plans yet. There was something in his body language or his facial, facial expression And I just knew that he was about to ask me to join his family for Thanksgiving. I immediately flew into introvert panic mode, imagined the little inside-out characters running around in my head, and blurted out that we'd figure something out. I instantly regretted it. I wanted to open myself up for the invitation again, but the moment had passed. If I was right and he did invite us, it probably would have been lots of fun. As much as I do love the warm, secure feeling of sharing a meal with family, the years when I got together with an unexpected group were just as warm and much more fun. Our next story is the story of Mullah Nasruddin. The title is actually a little bit longer, but it gives away the punchline. So we'll just... Mullah Nasruddin. It was the holy month of Ramadan, and Mullah Nasruddin had been working hard in the fields all day, tending to them, pulling out weeds, everything that was ready to be harvested, had it in a big basket, it was all ready to go, but he was hot and sweaty, and above all, he was hungry. He hadn't eaten all day, and what had sustained him during that day was the thought that the invitation that he and everybody else in the community had received from the wealthiest person in town invited everybody to his place to break fast that day. And so as the sun was starting to set, Mullah Nasruddin was finishing up in the fields, and he sort of gauged the time and said, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm going to be able to to make it in time all the way back to my place and to change into something nice to be able to go to the party. And he looked at his dirty, dusty shoes and his clothes and the, the mud that was sort of caked on his face and said, it's okay, it's okay, I'll go like this. And so he started walking down the path back into town. And the whole walk down that path, he was thinking of all the great food that he was going to have. There would be figs and nuts and bananas and apples and chicken and fish and these great little cakes for dessert and baklava and all these wonderful things. And he walks all the way into town and he arrives at the, at the wealthy person's door where the party is and he knocks on the door. Well, thank you said Mullah Nasruddin, as the, as the host opened the door and he looked him up and down. He didn't recognize him. He just saw the dusty clothes, the mud kicked on the shoes, and without a word of invitation, just sort of nodded him into the house. Mullah Nasruddin walks into the house and he looks around and everybody from town is there. In every corner, people are meeting and talking and socializing. They're in their best clothes. And he goes down to meet them, but nobody's interacting with him. And there's not a seat available anywhere. Nobody moves to make space for him. He has to reach over people and around people to finally get some food onto his plate. And when he does, he's about to take a bite. 
And he looks around and he realizes that while the plate is that fine, perfect food that he imagined in the fields all day and on the walk to the house, he just couldn't eat it. And instead of sitting there and eating, what he did was he left. And he walked out and went all the way back to his house and changed. into his finest coat and shirt. And he went back down that path into town and knocked on the door again. And the host opens the door. Mullah Nasruddin, so good to see you. Finally, we've been awaiting you. Please, please come in. From every corner, people turned in their fine clothes to look at Mullah Nasruddin. Ah, come. Scoot, scoot. Make a seat for Mullah Nasruddin, please. And they filled his plate with food. And they welcomed him asked him about his day, and Mullah Nasruddin takes one banana off that table and puts it into the pocket of his coat and says, eat, coat, eat. (laughs) And the people that were near him sort of looked at him a little bit funny, um, but he just kind of, you know, went on, and then he took, I believe, a tomato and put it in his coat and said, eat, coat, eat. And as if the tomato wasn't enough, he wanted the sweet stuff too, so... He took a cake. Eat, coat, eat. And there was food everywhere for Mullah Nasruddin. For example, there was... Who's got food for Mullah Nasruddin? Ah, cheese. Eat, coat, eat. What else do we have? Oh, everybody's favorite Ramadan food. Cheez-Its. Thank you. For Mullah Nasruddin's coat, which he put in his coat and said, Eat, coat, eat. And after all this was done and his coat was full, he realized everybody was silent now. And looking at him, and the host comes rushing over and says, Mullah Nasruddin, why is it that you're feeding your coat in this manner? And the mullah says, well, when I first arrived here in my clothes from the field, I was not welcome. So I went home and I put on my coat and I came back and was welcomed graciously. And I realized it's not me that is welcomed here. It is my coat. And so I am feeding this honored, honored guest. (laughs) Mullah Nasruddin. This is a reading from David White. A real conversation always contains an invitation. You are inviting another person to reveal herself or himself to you to tell you who they are and what they want. Well, in the interest of inviting folks to reveal themselves, a little bit of themselves to us, I'd like to now invite Nora Ludden and Barry Gala Ford to share an experience of their own. First with Nora. Hi there. I was 16. I got a job acting in a play and as a street character at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. It was a pretty good summer job. Near the end of the summer, a fellow actor said that he had been offered a job with this circus that was just getting started, a radical new concept, a circus with no animals. 
No experience was necessary. They were looking for performers with a specific height and weight, and I fit in that range. And they would provide months of free intensive training for anyone who signed the contract to work with them. Would I have to drop out of high school? Yeah. Was it a ploy to date me? Probably. But I still wonder, usually on days when things are not going well in the office, what would have been if I had not turned down the opportunity to get in on the first floor of Cirque du Soleil? When, uh, when Ellen and I were engaged, we found a response to a wedding invitation in the mailbox of our cottage. No surprise there, but this was regrets from Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis? <laughs> of course, we hadn't invited her, never having had the pleasure of, you know, meeting her or anything. And she wasn't even sending regrets to our wedding, so it was obvious that the envelope had been misdelivered. It was intended for our good friends Lucy and Jamie, staying at 75 Old Hartford Turnpike. Not for us in 75R Old Hartford Turnpike at the rear of the same property. Our friends were also engaged, and Jamie did, in fact, know Jackie from when his father had been a diplomat in the Kennedy years. The idea of inviting Jackie to their wedding did not go unchallenged. Lucy did not want her wedding to become a paparazzi circus. But Jamie assured her that Jackie would send regrets and a case of fine wine, just as she had for his older brother. (laughs) In the event, there was no wine forthcoming, but Jackie did send Lucy and Jamie a brass trivet displaying the presidential seal. Next story, this is called The Lion's Wedding. La, la, lion with an L. Yeah? So who attends lion's weddings? Potentially other lions, but all sorts of animals. So here's what I'm going to ask of you. You folks over here, from here over, monkeys. When monkeys talk, what do they sound like? Nice, nice. This is a very unique forest because next to the monkeys, uh, those of you from aisle to aisle right here, are the bears. And when bears talk, they kind of go like this. All right. And finally, just it's this narrow strip, but you're going to have to make up what you lack in numbers. You'll have to make up for in passion the elephants who say... Okay. <laughs> Now that we know what elephants sound like, we'll be good with this. So the lion's wedding. There once was a young lion, and he lived in the forest of Vrindavan. And just like all young lions, he looked, he looked very fierce. And all the other animals were afraid of him. And they'd grown up for generations being afraid of the lions. So, for example, the monkeys would tell their young... Exactly, exactly. When lion goes walking by, make sure that you move out of the way. The bears would instruct their cubs that if you see lion walking about, get back in the cave. And even the big, strong, powerful elephants would chide their their young, saying, 
you may be big, but you are no match for lion. And thank you for accenting the... That was perfect. Um, But that young lion, while he looked very fierce, he actually had a very kind and tender heart. And one year, as he was getting older, he met a lioness who was smart and creative and really good in science and math, and she was kind to others. And he proposed, and she said yes, and he was so excited, and he realized that he was going to have this fantastic wedding, and this might be the perfect opportunity to show all those other animals that he really did have a kind heart, and they could all get together and celebrate his wedding together. So he went back out into the forest and went to each of the animals, and he went to the elephants and said, oh, dear elephant, it would be an honor if you would play the trumpet at my wedding to herald everybody in. And the elephant said, of, of course, whatever you say. And he went to the monkey and said, monkey, you are such a wonderful dancer. It would, I would really appreciate if you would come to my wedding and help entertain the people who, those who show up. And monkey said, absolutely, I'll be there. And then monkey scurried away. And then he went to bear and said, bear, I would really be honored if you would come to my wedding and if you could bring some fresh honey for the rituals. And Bear said, I will do my best. I will try. And then Bear kind of walked off. And this way, the lion went to all the other animals in the forest, to the cats, to the, uh, to the giraffes, to those little rodent things I don't remember their name of. All of them got an invitation to the young lion's wedding. And this big event was spread out and it was the day of the wedding and the the lion and the lioness were standing there and all the other animals in the forest did not show up. And the young lion was so sad. A few days later, Bear was talking to Elephant and said, Why didn't you go to the young lion's wedding? And the elephants replied, I may be big, but I'm still afraid of lion. Why didn't you go? To which the bears replied. (laughs) I was afraid I hadn't collected enough honey and the lion might get angry and eat me. So the monkey chimed in, as monkeys do, to say, I'm so afraid of lion that I was worried that I wouldn't even be able to dance. And the wise crow, who had also been invited, flew overhead and said, Thus it is, my friends. We cannot share happiness with those we fear. And because of those unfounded fears, nobody went to Young Lion's wedding. Well, on that down note, no. <laughs> We'd like to close now with a poem. This is The Guest House by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond.